All right. I'm so happy there are people here on such a nice sunny day. So today is our session that begins the month on the seventh step of the Eightfold Path on wise mindfulness. And you know, we're going to go into a lot more about what that means. I don't know, some of you might be surprised that we're going to talk about mindfulness. Does anybody think we haven't been doing any mindfulness up until now? <laughs> We've never learned mindfulness before, but it's, it is the seventh out of the eight steps, which is interesting. Um, yeah, so we'll have a chance to go into that much more. Maybe I'll just start by um, creating an opportunity if anybody has any uh, lingering questions about um, wise effort, if you wanted to, or energy. Uh, if you have any questions about that, I'm not expecting it, but if, if you do, now is the moment. Oh, good, you got that one. <laughs> All right, then we'll go ahead and start with a sit to get ourselves settled in. So just bringing yourself into your body, into your place where you're sitting. You've maybe been running around a bit in order to arrive here. And so just... You know, be aware that you're here now. You can settle in and find your spot. Sit in your seat. If you're comfortable doing so, you can close your eyes. Just bring your attention into the feeling of the body in the sitting posture know that you are sitting at this moment. Very simple. And then feel the contact points where you are sitting. So your seat against the chair or the cushion or the bench, your legs or your feet somehow against the floor, a support. And just feel the stability of that posture. Three stable points make for a very grounded way of sitting. And just let yourself be supported, let go into the stable place that you're sitting. And then you may have the sense that as you let go into the support where you're sitting, there's a a corresponding uplift in the spine. There's a way that really giving ourselves to the seat actually helps us sit in that noble posture that the Buddha sat in under the Bodhi tree. Can almost feel like there's a, a little wire coming out of the top of our head, just kind of holding us up. Then the shoulders can soften and the body can soften, kind of hanging around that straightness of the spine and the head. And just allowing 
some further softening since we tend to sometimes tend to tense up just softening the muscles of the face the expression on the face the jaw softening the eyes and the eye sockets and even inside the head softening the thinking muscle We don't need to stop thinking, but we just let that muscle relax a little bit. through the throat, the shoulders, letting the shoulder joints relax. And in, in this way of sitting, they don't really relax by slumping forward. That puts pressure on the upper back and the neck. But if you let the shoulders relax by actually going backward a little bit and letting the shoulder blades slide down the back, it's actually more easeful for the whole frame. And down through the arms and the wrists and the hands. chest and the torso, softening the heart, the lungs, the ribcage, maybe as you breathe, thinking about the breath, penetrating that whole area, gently pervading it, and then on the next in-breath, allowing that to pervade even down into the belly, letting that be soft, round, receptive of the energy of the body. It may not completely relax. We have a lot of unconscious holding in the middle of our body, but just inviting some ease. Sensing down into the hip joints, the groin muscles, 
into the bulk of the thighs, the knee joints, down through the ankles and the feet. Just letting the mind roam through the body, maybe now bringing the attention back to whole body awareness, having invited some some degree of connection and relaxation. But however the body is, is fine right now. We're not trying to make it a certain way, just connect with it. just staying with full body awareness. You may feel the breath, and if that's your primary object, you can go to that, but I'm pointing toward mindfulness of the body. All the little sensations that go through our physical frame. the mind so that we receive these sensations from the body in a very open way that doesn't doesn't have preconceived ideas about it. Instead of thinking of your shoulders and your arms and your back, just notice the sensations, the flickering, the tingling, the pressure where there's contact heat, little flows of energy that arise and dissipate, kind of a kaleidoscopic feeling of energy. What is the body anyway? These set of sensations. I'm just resting in what's called the flickering field of the body. Letting it be what it is.
really listening to the body like we would listen to a friend. We may not immediately know or understand what our friend is talking about, but we care about them and we take them seriously. And we have some respect for our friend. So we listen. We really try to hear the subtlety of what they're saying. We may begin to appreciate the subtlety of how the body expresses itself moment to moment.
curious the way the mind is. Is it concentrated? Is it diluted? Is it greedy? Is it calm? These kinds of things. You can see that we're kind of getting progressively more in. You know, the body is pretty basic. It's our interface to the world. The feeling tone is a little bit more personal about how we're sensing things, how they, their affective tone for us. And then the, the mind is like our mood. It's kind of our, um, uh, the, the state that we're in as we're doing all of this. So it's getting closer and closer in, deep into more our very personal heart, heartfelt experience of the moment. And then the fourth foundation is a little bit different. It's the mindfulness of the dhammas, um, the dharmas. And that has you know, different meanings, but probably what it means is the uh, mindfulness of, of mental qualities. The word dharma has a lot of meanings, but here it seems to mean mental qualities, whether our mind has particular qualities that are relevant for the path, and there's a whole bunch of different practices to be done within there. And it actually has a contemplative aspect to it. Mindfulness of the first three foundations is very present moment. It's just, you know, what you've been trained in these moment-to-moment awareness, what you've been trained in these uh, classes on mindfulness. And then the fourth foundation, you're asked to notice things like how certain states come about, what supports them, how do they grow and develop, how do they go away. Uh, So you have to actually put in the time dimension. So it's a little bit more subtle and sophisticated, and it starts to cultivate wisdom. So that's the quick overview. The first half of today, our first, you know, we do these in two halves. The first half is going to be on the first three foundations, and the second half will be on the fourth foundation. So, the title of the sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta, Sati means mindfulness. Um, Patana is an interesting word. Um, It later came to mean foundation, um, like substrate almost, you know, you the patana is like what the building rests on. I don't know if it was li- used literally for physical things, but that seems not to be what it was referred to in the earlier one. It's actually not the same word. Um, I won't go into the word cultivation, but the uh, the, the word derivations. But the uh, the form that it's used in this sutta seems to mean establishment. It seems to mean what brings forth how does these how does mindfulness get established so it's not like you have mindfulness and these are the the you know the foundations that are supporting it in place it's actually a question of how am i going to establish mindfulness it doesn't assume that you have a lot of it right away mindfulness is a quality of the mind that everyone has inherently but these are practices that bring forth and establish the mind in mindfulness I don't mean to belabor a point that may sound too, you know, subtle and kind of like, why do we care about this? But it is important if you think of it as a, if you think of it as an establishment, as a way of bringing about mindfulness. It, it actually has more the correct flavor of it. So we do these practices. It's just a collection of practices. This entire sutta. Um, we do them in order that the mind will be able to abide continuously in the state called mindfulness. That's actually the point. It's to establish mindfulness as what's called a factor of awakening. Now, nobody's in there 100% of the time. That's not, you know, you don't have to get down on yourself if you lose mindfulness. But these practices make it more and more continuous, and that's actually their purpose. So, if you've never read the Satipatthana Sutta, I totally recommend reading it. It's not difficult language. It's not super-duper long. Um, It's Majjhima Nikaya number 10 in this book.
the one that I have marked with a little thing because it's so important. Okay, so, um, so I prefer the term establishment, but sometimes I say foundation anyway because it's somehow easier to say. So because mindfulness is a factor on the path, seventh factor on the path, it is not one constant thing. It changes. So what mindfulness is to you right now is not what mindfulness is going to be to you five or ten years from now if you keep practicing. It changes, right? Ethics is not the same to you as it was when you were a child. It grows and develops over your lifetime. Same with um, wisdom, first factors of the path, view, intention, those change. Mindfulness changes. So we don't need to think that we're trying so hard to figure out what this th mindfulness thing is, or now that I've got it, it's always going to be like this. This actually, I think, hinders people in their practices when they, because you know, you, you can get mindfulness from taking an eight-week MBSR course. You'll definitely have more mindfulness after that, and you'll have a sense of what it is and how it operates in your life. But if you just think, that's, that's it, that's what mindfulness is, I'm just going to repeat that for the next 25 years, I don't think you'll advance very far. So we have to be open to the fact that mindfulness changes. Um, for example, one of the things people complain about sometimes with mindfulness is that it's a little bit distancing. You know, they've been told, oh, instead of getting angry, be mindful of your anger. And so they learn to step back and see the anger and relate to it um, as a sort of an object of awareness. This is a great thing to do with unwholesome mind states, instead of acting them out and being stuck in them, is to pull back and, be, and observe them. But mindfulness is not just the observer. Uh, if you think that's what it is, then yeah, it's very valid to raise your hand and say, I don't want to be distinct from my experience, and how is this leading to a kind of a unified you know, way of being? Why is it so artificial? Well, it isn't, because that's actually very basic mindfulness, is to pull back and be an observer. It's the first step get out of the mud. <laughs> Later, we do more like what I did in the guided meditation is very intimate, right? You do, you weren't, I didn't ask you to observe your body. I asked you to really listen, feel, feel those subtle sensations going through. Those were not very distinct, not very far away from your awareness, at least the way I was trying to convey that in my instructions. I don't know what your experience was. So mindfulness is different at different times, and later it will be yet different, and it cycles between all these. So please be aware that it changes. Um, okay, so the same with, in the same way, the satipatthanas, the foundations, the establishments of mindfulness, start with the things that are easy to be aware of, your body. Okay, I can feel that. Everybody can feel their body somewhere, even if you can't feel the whole body. Um, and then the feeling tone is more subtle, and the mind state more subtle. Uh, even if your emotions are strong, these really being mindful of them can be more subtle. And then finally the dharmas are the most subtle in some sense. Um, okay, so mindfulness, attention, awareness, consciousness. Don't bother trying to distinguish all of these really finely. Um, they are distinct, but I do want to distinguish mindfulness from attention. Mindfulness is not the same thing as attention. Um, you can always pay attention to something. You've been paying attention since your first grade teacher said, Hey, Kim, pay attention. Okay. <laughs> I was paying attention, but I don't think I was very mindful at that particular moment. Maybe I was. I don't know. Um, so the sutta actually gives 
quite a few instructions, key words that help us know that what we're doing is we are establishing mindfulness, not just attention. So, I'll start with the words. Um, So first of all, he says, oh, actually I'm going to read the inspirational part first. This is the Buddha speaking. Practitioners, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four establishments of mindfulness. That's pretty good advertising. (coughs) So it says this is it. You know, if you can do this, it will lead to the attainment of the true way and the realization of Nibbana. So that should get your attention. And then he says, what are the four? What are these four foundations? So he says, here a meditator abides, contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. And then it goes on to feelings, mind, and dharmas. Contemplating the body as a body. So there are different interpretations of this, but for me it just means you don't do anything besides be with it. You really listen to it as it is, as it's speaking to you at that moment. It's not about making it into something. It's not about proliferating about it. It's not about worrying about it. Same with feelings as feelings, mind as mind, dharmas as dharmas. (coughs) It's a tall order. We, We really want things to be certain ways, and we have a lot of agendas, and this is challenging immediately, our agendas. Ardent. Ardent, what a nice word, to be ardent about it. It's the same root as ardor, love. So with a really a, a loving approach. Fully aware and mindful. Interestingly, he throws in the word mindful, it's sati. So to establish mindfulness, you need mindfulness. Mm-hmm. It's uh, circular in some ways, but it's also pointing to the... I think I said it was a bootstrap process last last time. So... We need mindfulness to establish more mindfulness. And then the last phrase is very important, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. So he doesn't say, so it's very clear, that's wanting, you know, that's wanting things and sadness, you know, about the world, which is our life, our relationships, our job, uh, the politics. It says, having put away that. It doesn't say, this is not important. It doesn't say you're never going to get back to this. It doesn't say you shouldn't think about this as, you shouldn't care about this if you're on the Buddhist path. We don't care about things like that. It just says, when you sit down to do this practice, you put away this. And so you can actually, um, I have sometimes done this, when I walk in the door to my meditation area, um, consciously set down those things and just say, for this time, these stay here, like my umbrella outside the door, and then I'll go in. I'll pick it up back up on the way out, no problem. I have to do things in my life. But for now, I'm going to put away covetousness and grief for the world. Okay, so then... 
Oh, I'll also comment. I mean, I did just say about coming in to sit down. But actually, in these instructions, it just says abides contemplating. It actually doesn't say sitting. So these are, and some, some of these practices are not sitting practices. Mindfulness can be done anytime, anywhere. Um, the, some of the body practices are about, you know, awareness of your posture, awareness of daily activities. So it's, there's no understanding that you have to be sitting. But some of the practices are sitting practices. But this is really meant to be a very foundational, if I can use that word, practice that we can do anytime, all the time. Um, and then there are more specialized practices, like mindfulness of breathing, for example, even though that is that is in the Satipatthana Sutta. But um, there's a more detailed sutta on mindfulness of breathing later, Sutta 118. And that one, just for comparison, you guys are getting a sutta lesson today, is what I'm interested in right, in right now. So this one, um, the Buddha is talking about mindfulness of breathing, and he says, okay, how is, how, monks, is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it, it is of great fruit and great benefit? Here, a meditator, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded her legs crosswise, set her body erect and established mindfulness, she breathes in and out mindfully. So that's a different instruction to start out. It says you're going to go away, you're going to sit down, set the body erect, and be mindful. This sutta doesn't say anything about sitting down. It just says you aware of your body as a body, etc. Not about sitting, necessarily. I know this seems really, really detailed, but <coughs> when you read the suttas, you realize there's a lot in here, and it's actually very clear what you're supposed to do, <laughs> where you're supposed to do it, how you're supposed to do it. So now let's talk a little bit then about about these satipatthana, establishment of mindfulness practices. What do we do to establish mindfulness, to be able to have the mind abide in mindfulness? So starting with the foundation of the body, I'm not going to read through everything in great detail. I'm just going to run through them quickly and, and then encourage you to read it at your leisure. And then I'll give a couple examples from my own life. Um, and then we'll... Then we'll have a, a small group discussions. So in the body section, there is the um, mindfulness of breathing. There is mindfulness of posture, which is the four postures, whether you're sitting, standing, lying down, or walking. I know there's other postures besides that, but that covers a lot of them, actually. Um, so you're aware of what you're doing when you're doing it. It's, it seems so almost boneheadedly simple, like why would that be important? But actually, how often do you really bring to mind how your body is disposed? That's what it says, how my body is disposed at this moment. I like the word comport, how I'm comporting my body. Port is actually, right, the body. Um, so, like at this moment, you're sitting. Everybody in this room is sitting. So it's worth actually noticing, oh, I'm sitting. And then when you stand up, noticing that you've stood up, you're walking to the bathroom, I'm walking. So it's, that's actually a nice way to just keep your mind in the present moment. And then there's full awareness of activities. This is um, pretty much nothing is excluded. So full awareness when wearing your clothes, 
when carrying things, when eating, drinking, consuming food, tasting, defecating, urinating, standing, sitting, falling asleep, walking, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. So even the bathroom is not out of bounds. Um, so this you can do, do all the time, and this is what's encouraged in introductory mindfulness classes, is just start being aware of what you're doing. It comes straight from the sutta, actually. It was adapted for modern life by John Kabat-Zinn and Bob. <coughs> then there's the bodily parts, also taught by Bob here. So imagining, understanding what's in the body, the body parts, the liquids, the solids. In the original sutta, there's 31 parts, commentaries add another one, so we say into 32 parts, but if you actually were to count them in the sutta, you'll come up with 31. If you want to come complaining, I'll tell you why that is, so just so you don't come complaining to me, there are only 31 listed. So that's useful. That's actually more of a sitting practice. The the, the elements, so imagining the body in terms of earth, water, fire, and air, and that's not, those are not like, you know, medieval elements. They are in the West. They're the medieval understanding of physical world, but that's obviously not what was referred to in ancient India. There are uh, more experiences uh, that we have, experiences of solidity, of liquidity or cohesion, of heat, and of motion. That's what the four represent. The body uh, has, I know it has other feelings besides that, but most of them, are, a lot of them are covered by those four. And so you can just start to not see the body so much as my arm, my back, that pain in my knee, you know, it's like, okay, you've already thought about your body that way a zillion times. So think about it instead in terms of the experience of the body, all these little pulses of energy. It's useful. And then there are the nine charnel ground contemplations, so the contemplations of uh, the decaying corpse. And that's also very useful for mindfulness of death of our own end of the impersonality of the body of its sameness with nature in each of these cases um, we are to abide a certain way we notice um, we notice these things externally internally both internally and externally we notice things arising passing away and both arising and passing away. Or else we simply have a very bare awareness of things just sufficient to be mindful of them. I know that sounds kind of weird and technical, but basically what we're noticing is the world around us, our internal world, movement, change, you know, anicca, things arise and pass, that's wisdom. And then also there's a this one about the bare awareness of just being just basically aware. That's when it's too much effort, when the mind gets very still. You don't want to be thinking about this arising, passing, internal, external, too much. So you just uh, have this very simple awareness that something is there, the body is there, the feelings are there. So much for the body. Contemplation of feelings, pleasant, painful, neutral. And then there's another designation of worldly and unworldly. And that's whether you notice that things are coming from the senses, you know, the, the regular senses, or whether they're coming from uh, something deeper from the, uh, the ethical conduct of the mind. So the mind, we can have pleasant sensation that comes because of, say, uh, jhana, you know, deep concentration, or it comes because of ethical conduct. That's considered more unworld, unworldly. 
and then uh, you know whereas chocolate cake is worldly <laughs> you know we can see the difference and um, yeah, and it doesn't have any judgment Satipatthana Sutta is marvelously unjudgmental at least the first three foundations that you're just supposed to notice all these things so this is just creating like it's creating a vocabulary for us through this whole sutta it's like experience there's a lot of experience coming at us all the time and you know we've organized it in a certain way that's how we're running our life you know this is you know this is the uh, speaker and this is my <coughs> cell phone and that there's that pain in my back that I've had for a while and whatever it is and this says okay that's all fine but here's a, a, a possible schema for understanding your experience you understand what posture you're in, you understand what you're doing, you understand whether you're feeling something pleasant, painful, neutral, worldly or unworldly. And about the mind, moving on to the third, you understand whether your mind has greed or doesn't have greed. You understand whether it has hatred or it doesn't have hatred. Whether it has delusion or not, whether it's concentrated or not, etc. So just basic qualities, there's about 10 or 12 of them, I won't read them all. Um, and the whole part of the first, the whole first three are just about noticing things. <laughs> Here are the things that you could notice and really establish your mind on. Um, and it's so useful. It's not like a memorization thing. It's not like this is the only way to see the world. But it's telling you, if you want, what does it say at the beginning? Mm -hmm. If you want... The surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, the disappearance of pain and grief, the attainment of the true way, the realization of Nibbana. These are some suggestions. Up to you. Yeah. Okay. So, please read them. Is that posted, or is there any way we can get a copy? Of the of this sutta? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's online, actually. Write down the words MN10, and then if you go to a thing called suttacentral.net, or else access to insight.org, suttacentral.net or access to insight.org. Or if you just go in our library and get this book, um, it's in the reference section, um, and you look up Sutta number 10, uh, this is the MN book, Majjhima Nikaya, uh, it's there. It's, it's like five or six pages. It's totally readable. And, and what is the exact name of it again? The Satipatthana Sutta. S-A-T-I-P-A-T-T-H-A-N-A. -A -T -T -A -A. Satipatthana. So I'll just offer a couple ways that I've worked with this, and then, um, then we'll go into some discussion. So when I started practice, um, when I first started, I was physically tense, tense, tense. <laughs> I was very tense. Um, I would tense up around contact with physical objects, like every every surface I was touching, my body would be like, <sighs> um, I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, you know, objects like the ground, the chair, the table I was eating at, there would be a little bit of um, tension where I was touching it. And I, f I had a very fruitful practice of um, just noticing contact points and relaxing. <laughs> and I did that for years as part of my kind of daily life. I was doing other things also, but as part of my daily life practice was just to not fight against the physical surfaces I was touching. It was just something, some habit pattern in my mind to do that. Um, and so, you know, this was, um, this is very much related to 
the instructions in the sutta, not having covetousness and grief about anything. So there's a sort of a, a manifestation of grief, of not liking, not wanting things. Um, and also to just see the body as a body and not as something that needs to have a, a aversive relationship to its surroundings. Um, and mindfulness of posture, mindfulness of uh, what I was doing had a huge impact on me, actually, to just do that very simple practice of relaxing uh, for years. And I still do it to some degree, a little bit, just automatically in the background, but I, I needed it a lot at the beginning. Very supportive. Um, also, it's interesting to use the body. Yeah, I really want to emphasize the body, actually. That's the, the, it's, it's, it gets the most number of practices, and it's the most accessible. And I found it to be incredibly supportive because the body is always in the present moment. The mind, who knows where the mind is? It could be anywhere, anytime, anywhere. But the body is always right here. <laughs> and so it doesn't lie. You can just, if you're with the body, the mind is at least in the present moment. Um, so it's also used, interesting to use the body as part of uh, an interactive experience. Like the, the body is, tells us a lot in, in the mind. Um, so I was recently one time managing a retreat and uh, so I was one of the managers and one of the yogis needed to leave partway through the retreat and um, she came and you know was, we were talking in the office about that and she said that she needed to leave and she she didn't want to tell me why obviously um, she needed to leave just like one day early so she wasn't leaving immediately but I said well you know why, why is that and she said oh personal reasons, and she was sort of not going to say more than that. And as she said that, I felt this um, tension from like here to here. I felt this kind of w sort of wall-like feeling in the middle of my body. I thought, oh, okay, I can, you know, I can directly feel her resistance and her unwillingness to say any more. And it was so helpful for me to just feel that in myself, and I knew it was a reflection from her. It was some kind of an empathetic feeling in my own body. Um, so just being able to feel that and hold it, you know, having the mindfulness to just be able to hold that sensation, I didn't react against it. Uh, the more we do this practice, the more we will see that every emotion has a reflection in the body somewhere, and that the unpleasant emotions are actually difficult to hold. I mean, they're very... Um, agitating and painful, that if you want to do mindfulness of feeling tone, difficult emotions are literally hard, painful in the body. Maybe not painful like somebody, you know, poked you with a stick, but it's, it's energy you don't want to hold. And so much of our reactivity, where we snap at somebody, you know, we say something verbally to them, or we make a, you know, a, a, a comment that we regret later, is because actually we can't hold, we're not mindful, we can't hold that feeling in our own body. So mindfulness of the body is hugely beneficial and supportive for being able to interact well with other people. And it does take some effort, some work, to be able to disidentify enough with that experience that we can just feel the sensation and just know that we don't have to do anything with it. Just the body is the body. The body is expressing what's happening in the situation in some way, and I can, I can hold that, I can be with it. But if you're not aware of it, then, then it has a hook on us, and it can cause us to react. 
when i tell you all this you can be very it can be tempting sometimes to say oh that's what's going on with that person that's why i want you to turn it around and <laughs> look at it here uh, if you can comport yourself well don't worry so much about how other people are and what their bodies might be feeling more about your own so the summary maybe for the satipatthana sutta sections 1 through 3 is to equanimous and seeing change so um, keep calmly seeing change is kind of the instruction keep staying with things being calm and watching how they flow and change in the body the feelings and the heart all right obviously i could go on for a long time about that but i think we'll stop there for now um why don't you get into groups of three? I don't know if that works, but see if you can get in groups of three and we'll see how it goes from there. Okay. So the first question for the groups is how would it help you to incorporate more bodily awareness into your daily life? And then the little follow-up, which you can answer at the same time, is in what moods or states of mind do you feel more embodied? So how would it help you to incorporate more bodily awareness in your daily life? And to the degree that you've noticed so far, in what moods or states of mind do you feel more embodied? So how about if um, the person with the... Uh, shortest hair can start. Okay. Oops. All right. So then the, uh, the second question, which you can just um, talk about as a group, like each person can give one example. Don't say all of your examples at once. Just say one and then let somebody else. And then you'll... Um, is just to think, can you think of examples of how being clear about your current experience can be helpful? So for example, how can it help to know what your mood or attitude is? Like when you're tired or lousy, feeling lousy or frustrated or happy or peaceful, like how does it help you to know that in the present moment? See how many ways you can think of that that's helpful. But I wanted to find out um, if you have any words of wisdom to share from all of that. If you wanted to offer anything in the larger group of what what came up. Or if you have any questions about these first three foundations. I forget your question exactly. It was the first question. But I remember when I was trying to give my answer, I got in this space where I wasn't sure. Anyway, I said it's helpful for me if I'm um, in fear, right, which is typically something in the future, that it's really helpful for me to be grounded in the current moment. Like, so now I'm safe. I'm in this moment. I'm in this body. I'm in this room. I'm with you. And I'm, you're not scary, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Most of you. Anyway, so um, I'm just kidding. So um, anyway, but then I thought, well, and then my question to myself, which, which I didn't answer, not expecting you to answer it. It's an interesting question for me. Is that if I'm angry, 
now is it good for me to drop into my body? And the reason I question it is because if, I, if I'm angry, I'm usually, it's usually still up here, if I drop into my body, it may be very unpleasant. Right? That's, it will be. <laughs> right? And I'm like, well, I don't know, maybe I'd rather just be angry up here. <laughs> anyway, that's where I left it with myself. I didn't have a chance to really think about it. Well, in my experience, the body is a much bigger vessel than the okay. confines of the brain. Obviously, the body is smaller than the mind, but um, is that if you give it a kind of a bigger space, and you know, the groundedness, the body's connected to the earth in mm-hmm. some way. So I've always found it easier to hold things in the body. Even anger. Even anger. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to dovetail on, on this conversation. Um, I think I'm starting to realize that when you bring it into the body, you know, out of the head space and more to the heart space, it, it, it kind of interrupts the head space energy, right? It kind of like pauses it, not pauses it, but it, it kind of just breaks it up, right? Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you're going here, uh, and then your focus is here. Yeah. And though this may be uncomfortable, I would, uh, for me, it would be, it's more comfortable here, being existing here than up here. Yeah, for me too. So I was trying to get across with the space. It's just so tight and confined, and I think you said the energy of the way the mind operates, the way the brain <laughs> sometimes holds things. Yeah, uh, it is painful, but you know, mindfulness helps us, especially mindfulness of feeling tone, helps us uh, hold experiences that are unpleasant. Uh, you can't not expect all of your experience to be pleasant. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't work that way. Um, that's one of the things we learned, actually, through that foundation of mindfulness, that establishment of mindfulness, is that uh, it's just how it is in the world, is that there's pleasant, there's painful, and there's neither pleasant nor painful. Those are the choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's not that you would seek out painful experience, necessarily, although there are times when, to further our practice, we deliberately expose ourselves to things that are difficult in order to mature and strengthen ourselves. Um, but we realize the fruitlessness through this through Satipatthana practice. One of the wisdoms you get is the that it's just fruitless to try to arrange your life to only be pleasant, only be comfortable, only be safe, etc. Uh, in the yeah, yeah. It, doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. Well, I mean, it's the strategy most of us have done. We should be honest about that. Is that we, this is what we did for the first X decades of our life. And it didn't work, and that's why we wound up in inside Santa Cruz. Um, but it's okay because there's another option. You know, there are other options. We can go for skillful instead of pleasant. That's the summary of the option. Yeah. I have a question. Um, the idea of laying down covetedness and grief. Covetousness and grief for the world. I mean, that's the translation, of course. Okay. It's some poly words. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's interesting because I hear so much like turn toward and like instead of set down. Um, yeah. Well, but all the practices point toward being with our experience. Yeah. I think what it's pointing to is letting go of reactivity in certain ways. Okay. Uh, seeing a, a situation in terms of something that I want, covetousness, or something that I'm disturbed about, grief. That's actually an imposition onto experience. In Satipatthana, the first three foundations are so much about putting down our constructions so that we can see things as they 
uh, are arising as they are actually accurately arising. And actually, yeah, so it's an interpretation to have covetousness or grief. Yeah, I think that's that's what I would interpret that as meaning, not as uh, saying that we should turn away from uh, things that are difficult. Yeah, because that would go against the practice of the you know, four noble truths. Yeah, well, thank you for bringing that up. That does that could be potentially confusing. Yeah, I sort of have a question, a comment, and then a question because I'm thinking about what you just said about the anger and like at least for me there's definitely the thing of like if I remember oh this is just a feeling like like <laughs> if I can do get it in my body it takes a lot of the probably it takes a lot of story out of it right it's just like okay this is you know the tightness in my stomach that's it yep like that's it all it is away. it's all it is but the other thing is that at least for me and I don't know how this works with the possum I don't know how it works with Buddhism but like if if I can sort of realize it's not like all of me that's angry it's like some who's angry like and you know there's some part of me that's angry like it's like somebody's you know some part of me is telling a story usually and that's the part that's angry and so if I can actually sort of have a conversation with that like like let that part be angry but make space so that like there's a bigger me kind of having a like ask like inquiring and saying like why are you so mad and that kind of, like somehow that helps too. I'm not yeah, the, the part of you that's aware of the anger is not angry. Right. <laughs> as soon as you know that, then you understand that the anger cannot be yourself. It's not the whole thing. Okay, so that's helpful too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think awareness of the body um, is useful to, let's say, I'm hungry. Um, I notice that I'm hungry. Uh, it's useful to realize that, uh, you know, whatever I'm upset about is not personal and it's impermanent, but also I feel like it's the, realistically it's useful because it tells me I need to go eat something. Is that Sure, it might have actual information for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? or, or that I'm tired. Well, yeah, maybe you should take a nap or yeah. whatever. Absolutely. It's about practical wisdom as well as deep wisdom. Many of us are living our lives on some kind of theory. You know, it's like, well, it's noon, I guess I should eat lunch. But am I actually hungry? <laughs> you know? um, yeah. I think this is, this is very sensible. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've noticed that uh, in these exercises we're uh, collectively addressing some quote-unquote negative aspects, mind states, etc., but um, it just occurred to me that uh, having mindfulness, you don't, you don't have to have an experience in order to practice mindfulness. In fact, if you practice mindfulness, you'll have more likely to have a positive mind state. Yeah, we can be mind. We should be mindful of the <laughs> right. positive parts too. Right. The pleasant. Or neutral. Yeah. You know, and the neutral. Yeah. Just being mindful at any time. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we don't need to be having a some kind of a big disaster in order to be mindful of it. Yeah, people sometimes can't connect with the neutral. We didn't really go into detail on feeling tone, but 
when you start to tune into it, it's interesting to note that the vast majority of experience is neutral, actually. Like the the, cl- the classic one that's easy to connect with is the touch of your clothing on your skin. Unless you're wearing an itchy sweater, um, <laughs> mostly that's pretty neutral. But you can feel it, right? It's a sensation. You can feel your shirt and your pants. Um, that can be a really nice way to ground the mind, actually. Just settle into the basicness. So much of experience is just kind of basic. And the thing about neutral experience is that we are um, evolutionarily attuned to ignore it. Actually, the mind is just attuned to ignore it. It's because it's not um, juicy for us. What we really like is the stuff that's pleasant because we want to get that, and the stuff that's unpleasant because we want to get rid of that. That's what we really care about. And anything that doesn't fall into those categories is not relevant. I don't need it. Um, but you're eliminating the vast majority of experience. <laughs> so it's um, it's worth noticing that there's a wide variety of things going on. And if you're more the negative type, then you should notice the positive just for balance. That's another thing that the mindfulness of feeling tone does. We're now getting into some of the things that happen when you actually start to practice these, is most people will notice they have some kind of bias. Um, and this is information. This is useful. We're talking about information. This is useful information to know what your mind tends to notice. You are not a unbiased observer of your life. You are a very biased observer of your life. And it's very humbling to see that, um, you know, to see how much we tend to be attuned to the negative, most of us. But some people attuned to the positive, And most of us completely forget about the neutral. So knowing that there's is kind of a proportion out there. You could check if you're actually having the proper uh, inclusivity in your experience, to say it, to use modern parlance. How inclusive are you in your experience in terms of letting in all different types? Okay, let's have a little break. If you're hungry, you could have a snack. (laughs) Um, We'll be back in between five and ten minutes, I'll ring the bell. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.